Welcome to the Biota Podcast. I'm Tom Barbele, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming back Anton. Anton, my understanding is that you've been you've been moving movable feast machine into a GPU environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I um, actually, after the last podcast we did, um, Andrew, who also works with um, Dave Ackley, contacted me on Twitter and he said, "Hey, you know, you should come chat with us." And so I came in and we chatted a bit about GPU stuff and kind of kicked around some ideas and I did a prototype on shader toy and then it seemed to work. So I actually took some free time and uh, made a GPU port. Um, we actually went as far as writing a uh, compiler for the uh, splat and Ulam language to convert it to GLSL. And so it's pretty cool. It's a full kind of um, transpiler from splat, which is the one of the languages you can use to program the architecture. And then, it spits out a bunch of GPU code, which I feed to the OpenGL um, compiler and then convert to shader code or microcode and then runs on the GPU. So it's it's pretty fast. It's a lot less features than the, the original, um, but it's very, very fast. And we're simulating like 16 million sites or something in somewhat real time. So it's, it's pretty exciting from kind of the size standpoint, but, you know, still early days to see um, what kind of programs we can actually run. But and, and it's all available page. on GitHub, right? You've, you've made it's it all on. available. You've got YouTube, yeah, you know, yeah, YouTube-related so. stuff about it. So when we spoke last time, you had reservations about doing this kind of stuff. What, how have these reservations been squashed? What has occurred? Well, I mean, for one, I got like an explicit uh, work copyright waiver. So uh, I don't have to worry about kind of any legal issues, or at least, you know, to a first order anyway. It's, it's all kind of clean and all that. So I don't have to worry about um, the release and all of that stuff. And I released it all public domain, like MIT, as free as it possibly can be. So, I mean, I never had reservations on putting stuff other than, you know, things to do with professional work and also things that are unfinished. And also, I guess it's a different thing because this is very much... Uh, like a port of Dave's work. So it's not really, it, it, it's sort of not a, a, a new thing. It's more just like a, a port of an existing project. So in a way, I'm just, um, I'm just making it work on the GPU. So I'm not kind of like all design questions and, and all of that still goes to Dave effectively. So I'm not like an owner of it in the exact same way as if I was to put my own project. It, it, explicitly on it, if that makes any sense. So so the nature of the work waiver is something that I have had to do as well. Mm. And it is a very curious thing. I mean, I think people listening in to these recordings may not understand that when you work for particular corporations, technology corporations, the nature of the work that you do through artificial life, we have had people in the community that have effectively left the community because they've gotten into, you know, corporate wage slavery or whatever one wants to call it. And through this process, they are no longer able to maintain their projects. I think it's an interesting phenomenon, the explicit nature of asking permission to do this kind of work. And we didn't talk about that specifically when we spoke last time. Is that a concern associated with the work you've created? Like, for example, a bee simulation that you would need to get a similar work waiver and it would be more difficult because it wouldn't be derivative from someone else's work? You know, to be honest, it's, you know, my employer is fairly chill about these things, um, but the nature of any kind of work stuff is business, right? So you kind of, you can trust but check kind of mm-hmm. 
Would it be more difficult? I mean, in theory, yes, because, for example, if I was to ever want to sell the B project, whether it was open source or not, mm. uh, that raises, I, I mean, I guess I prefix it by saying that in my case, they would probably still approve it and it would all be fine. Mm. But certainly, uh, if I wasn't in a senior standing, that might not be true. If I wasn't in a large corporation, that might not be true. If I worded it differently, it might not be true. Uh, if I, you know, so it, it, it's very, very case dependent and the law is very, very gray. And, you know, honestly, the advice that I've heard in the past from other lawyers, maybe this would be a benefit to somebody listening, but basically uh, if, a, if it comes push to shove, the big company will always win if they want to win because the law is gray and whoever has more lawyers will be at an advantage in that situation. So that's, you know, a negative thing. But the reality is, is that, you know, the flip side of that coin is that almost certainly they won't go after anything that's small pennies, right? Unless they're trying to be a jerk about it. So, you know, it's all gray from what I, from what I understand, but it's better to have some, you know, some waiver than no waiver. Yeah. I think it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about what I'm doing with Noble Ape and iOS, and that's the mm. nature of my day job. It's yeah. completely related to iOS-related stuff, right. and very closely with a particular fruit factory as well. So, yeah, it is it is very interesting, the fact that sometimes these projects do overlap our professional elements. And, yeah, this is something that I haven't really... I mean, we talked historically many years ago, maybe it's somewhere in the mid-2000s associated with these phenomena, but now actually being a pretty heavily corporatized wage slave, these are things that are second nature. But I did want to put out to our listeners that this is certainly something that we have to do. The The nature of actually creating these things and putting them out in this context, I think actually gives them a, a greater degree of, or should give them a greater degree of respect and if such a thing exists, virtue. Um, <laughs> because really we are putting, you know, there there is an implicit risk associated with actually putting this stuff out here and, and you know discussions of free speech and these kind of things are all very curious in the light of you know a paid for job so in terms of what you have currently this is something that uh, other folk can pick up i mean do you get a sense of I, I professor ackley is doing quite a bit of promotion associated with your work do you get a sense that you know others will come and pick up the source code do you have other interests within the source code that you want to pursue well, so some people uh, that work um, with with him have already kind of contributed. So Marius um, ported the code to Linux. So, I mean, I kind of, it was supposed to run on Linux already, but of course it wouldn't, you know, because I've never actually tried to compile it. So him and I worked for a few days and kind of compiling under Linux, which is really good. Uh, and then Alan uh, was helping with, like, test driving the language and making stuff in it. So he's already made some cool demos, actually. Uh, and then, of course, Andrew kind of invited me along the first place, and he was looking at the code and stuff. So and a couple of other people, Joby, tried to run the code. So, like, quite a few, few people from that community have already engaged with it, which has been cool. I don't think anybody outside that community has really jumped in. If people are interested in, though, like, even if you're not interested in Google Feast in general, the code that I put up is actually, uh, a lot of it is the same code I use for prototyping most of my projects. So... It's not, you know, the cleanest thing, but it's a it's a pretty minimal framework just to get GPU code running and getting an OpenGL kind of window going and stuff. So it, it's basically a, a thin layer of convenience stuff on top of 
otherwise cross-platform library. So if you want to do a kind of GPU artificial life project uh, of any kind, it's you might look at that as your starting point because then you can kind of hit the ground running with GPU code on Windows and Linux. And it might even work on Mac, depending on it won't, unfortunately. <laughs> it well, yeah, if you want to do compute, it won't. But if, if you want to do pixel shader stuff, it might. Metal, I think, would lock what you're trying to do, from my understanding and use of metal. It is an interesting thing associated with the Apple's decision to break away from, you know, the the big the other yeah. <laughs> platforms with this thing because it creates a very curious well, you're right. I mean, I'm not sure the nature of the metal. I, I don't know the nature of the support that Apple is continuing with um, associated with this. But yeah, it is it is curious that I can spend so much of my time on one platform that doesn't unfortunately migrate yeah. to other platforms. I mean, they deprecated OpenGL, but they haven't dropped it yet. And I suspect that although it's deprecated, it'll probably stick around for a good amount of time. No. I, I think by I, then, I think probably it's gone. I mean, my perspective is I don't know in the new series of operating systems whether it's still supported, but we were given a one year time frame. Oh, wow. Okay. expires now. So, okay. my perspective is yeah, I, as soon as I heard that, I spent about a month and a half reworking all my stuff to metal. And there's right. still bugs in metal that I can't ports and things, which is yeah. still frustrating. So, Unfortunately, I don't know what kind of traction folks on the, the Apple side will have with that, but having put in the effort to get my stuff to work with Metal, I'm mindful and also, I don't know, I don't know what the term is, but yeah, it, it seems like a kind of gentler time looking at the stuff that you're working on compared to the experiences <laughs> that I've had. Yeah. Yes. It's a bummer because for these kind of personal projects, you know, I worked in um, console games and stuff, <laughs> and that has a proprietary API, so the PS4 has a totally separate driver and whatever. I actually really like working with proprietary APIs, and I actually think Metal is really good. Um, it's just in my personal projects, I'd rather not care too much. And OpenGL, you know, sucks for many reasons, but it's nice that it just kind of works, and I'm not doing anything super fancy. Um, so it's annoying from that perspective. So maybe the thing I'm kind of holding out and hoping for is somebody will just do like an OpenGL-like minimal OpenGL in Metal you know, wrapper thing. Um, that's the only thing I can hope for. I know that's happening for Vulkan. So, I mean, the other choice I have is to jump straight to Vulkan and then cross-compile Vulkan to Metal. That's an, that's another option. But Vulkan's also a beast. So it's kind of a bummer, but I like it. And it's just I don't have much time to spend. You know, you really need a full-time job to keep up with a custom API. Amen. Yeah. So a question I wanted to put out to you is I for many years, released the Noble Ape simulation on a at least once-a-month basis. It was really part of the open-source methodology that I maintained to have at least a release a month. And the nature of the functionality and the features shifted, and, you know, sometimes minor releases, sometimes major releases. But the thing that I forgot about in recent years is the benefit of having a medium-sized user base. When I would put out the simulation, I would have, in a month, maybe 10,000 downloads. So that was 10,000 people that were engaging with my software on some level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of that, maybe four to 6,000 were the same people downloading it. And, you know, this kind of interaction was very important for me. And then probably through the nature of what I do currently, 
I kind of dropped that off. I thought, okay, I'm writing source code. I'm still working on this thing on a daily or weekly basis, but I didn't actually put the releases out. And what I've realized recently, because I'm moving back to that methodology, is that the interaction that I had, even the passive interaction that I had with the community through doing that was really very beneficial and created a kind of, I don't know, public consciousness basically associated Mm. with the work that I was doing. And what fascinates me now coming back to it is that I am having basically, you know, it's been maybe eight years since I did this frequently. So I've got a new generation of users that are there potentially, and I'm working on an iOS app currently, which is a subset of the simulation, as you would see on Mac and Windows, but still it gives an insight. And the particular insight I'm looking for is the narrative aspect, the episodic interactions creating a narrative and the ability for people to move through the narrative kind of spatially as well as with each individual ape. And that is an interesting concept because I've never really seen that done previously in software. It's almost like a create your own soap opera mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I'm having a lot of fun currently just making that as, as mobile centric as possible. In terms of users of the stuff, in terms of users of artificial life, do you have a sense of what a, a user of artificial life would look like, like an end user? <laughs> Not a clue. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I know what I look like and a couple of my friends look like, but I think it's uh, it's really interesting because I think like we've talked before, there's, there's this umbrella of artificial life as a term, but everyone really gets a different kick out of it, I think. And I think some people really like the kind of procedural story aspect of it and the kind of the emergent narrative. And some people just like to, you know, nerd out on the genetics and things like that. So yeah, it's, that's a tricky one. But, you know, one of my, uh, one of the best advice I've heard in games from uh, an art director that I worked with, Kareem, he said, you know, if you, if you're going to make something, just make it super targeted for one kind of audience. And then that's actually the best way to get, you know, a, a large amount of people rather than trying to please everybody, trying to really narrow it down, which seems counterintuitive because you would think, okay, well, I want to have this kind of gameplay for these kind of people and this sort of gameplay for this kind of person. And, you know, there's some benefit in that if you want to kind of cross-pollinate. Um, but I think that only works as, like, icing on top. Your core thing really has to be for someone, for, for a clear someone. So I think, you know, doing something, like, very narrative-focused on iOS, I think if that's the thing, then that sounds good. You know, I think there's going to be definitely a contingent of people that are into that. I mean, judging by The Sims, that's like the largest contingent because that's the most, you know, accessible a life-like thing there is, and that's all about, you know, storytelling and emergent relationships and things like that. So, you know, sounds like you'd be in good company. What interests me about the nature of mobile versus desktop are things like power constraints. For the longest uh-huh. time, mobile, like, I mean, certainly its use of Apple and Intel. It was optimized to take the maximum possible, I mean, make it nutritious without question, but take the maximum possible amount of CPU mm. and really explore the power that these processes had. You don't want to fry an egg on your iPhone. Yeah. So I'm having to look at it. And the beautiful thing about narrative is the speed at which people read has a pace of its own. So you're kind of creating a pace just with the narrative component. And if it goes too quickly, and I can run it quickly, but if it goes too quickly, then it doesn't have the same experience associated with just seeing this thing evolve in a kind of narrative sense. 
Mm-hmm. So that in itself is providing some very interesting aspects. The nature of what help is in an iOS app or the nature of what help is in a mobile app, the nature of the user interface, the use of you know transitional icons and these kind of things, just the general feel, the fit and finish, for want of a better term, is something that I'm finding very fascinating. But the, the genre that I see it fitting into is actually feedback that I received very early on when I started developing Noble Ape. And that was with people that used it to go to sleep, to uh-huh. relax, to watch this thing. You know, emergence, and this is emergence in nature, it's emergence in any capacity, can have a very relaxing effect. And as I'm slowing it down to not completely <laughs> you know, milk the CPU for all it's worth, I'm realizing that there. I, I'm thinking about, you know, biorhythms. I'm, I'm sitting under my crystals and what have you. I'm thinking about how to use this app experience as a nurturing thing to engage with people associated with the potential of emergent behavior through processing. And I think that is a very interesting focus to start with this thing about because it removes it from all the stuff that I've worked on previously it removes it from the half a dozen bugs that need to be fixed before this thing comes out and it makes it into something which is more interesting actually it's an audience that i have tested in some regard but the feedback that i received when i did the initial instagram promotion where someone said that this would cause epilepsy well that's really good feedback (laughs) slow the thing down make it into a human paced thing and then people can engage with it at their own pace. And I think what I'm looking for is periodic interaction, the kind of casual game play interaction space, elements of Tamagotchi, elements of these kind of things associated with, you know, maintaining your, you know, little collection of apes. There's a kind of ant farm aspect to it as well. But within this thing, I'm kind of reframing what it is in my own thinking. And that is driving a lot of the functionality as well. But yeah, it's a very interesting process. Yeah, that sounds like a really, uh, a really different vibe. I think that's really good, though, because you know, like you said, they're running it fast and um, watching it at hyper rates and stuff. That very much appeals to you know people that are into the evolution side and the genetic yeah, side, certainly. and uh, because you know you want to make a change and see how it impacts or see how things work on the macro scale, and that's cool in in its own right. That's kind of what I enjoy doing. Um, but there's an equally viable kind of slow paced version. I've always found Dwarf Fortress very interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with that game, but mm. you know, it's it basically starts with, you know, a, a several minute simulation of the world as it builds up, you know, thirty thousand years of stories and history, and then it plonks you into the world at real time. So it's this like massive amount of compute up front up front and then a, a real time simulation from there on. So I thought that was kind of an interesting like the equivalent model might be that you know, you get your noble ape simulation and then you do the, sim- the long-term simulation in the cloud, as you mentioned before, like you buy a, a service or something and then it runs for you normal speed on your phone. So, you you know, you don't just watch a lone ape for 30 days or something while it bootstraps itself. I'm not sure how long it actually takes. Well, Maybe that's meditative too. <laughs> it's interesting actually because, I mean, with the simulation, you start with about, um, you know, 190-odd apes. So what you see through the early play elements is the evolution of social interaction. 
And you see building from this the notion of narrative that within, you know, five days, ten days, the ape has developed a series of quite interesting friends and enemy interactions and attraction interactions, which don't necessarily fit in with the friends and enemy things as well. Mm. Like there's an interesting kind of juxtaposition between attracted to the enemy in some very profound sense as well. So you get these things initially, and then the narrative gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the narrative becomes a thing in and of itself. And then what you start to realize is, but that's just this group of 10 apes around this area. Look, if I click on an ape on the fringes, well, this ape has a narrative which encompasses some of the first group of apes, but has its whole additional narrative. And look, you know, this ape is pregnant by that ape and has hit that ape. And, you know, he's tried to find this ape and then it keeps on going. And then eventually apes die, obviously. And, you know, apes are born and you've got this evolution of narrative within this evolution of society, which maps onto this physical thing that people watch as well. And the depth of complexity that comes through this, I don't think has ever been seen in a traditional game. I mean, with The Sims, you've got, you know, you've got a couple of generations worth of interaction, potentially, if you play it for days on end but Mm. you don't have this the diversity and breadth of movement which you have through i'm seeing through this late simulation thing yeah i think your only match would be dwarf fortress that would be your only kind of competition in terms of depth of storyline that that occurs that's the only example that comes to mind that sort of keeps long storylines going yeah personally i have run the simulation for hundreds of years there's a gentleman in germany who has run the simulation for, you know, 300, 400 simulated years and, you know, provides me periodic bugs that he finds through that. (laughs) So I'm relatively confident that this thing will work, but in giving it out as a free app, you have the potential for people to run it for, you know, just just by sheer scale of numbers. There are people that could run this thing and the, the potential for bug feedback in real time is something that I'm a little bit hesitant about. I mean, yeah. certainly the people I work with are, are bracing themselves for this thing, but the potential there could be quite interesting and extreme. And because I'm actively involved with an app that reaches, you know, let's just say tens of millions of people um, and know that scaling issue. It's interesting. The discussion that we've had associated with servers, because if I created, if I put the uh, iPhone app out there, then I create the server stuff, and then I link the two, I'm potentially in a situation where I need to think about serious, like the actual, you know, test pilot program to get people onto this thing is a different level of complexity. So yeah. it's interesting how I'm finding this experiment at a, at, a, at a time. And to be frank, you spoke with me, you know, a few months ago. You knew the nature of the problems I was facing then. I returned to this app as a means of addressing quite vertically the problems that I've had of my work being explicitly censored. So it is an interesting thought process to go through. But my hope is to have an active test flight program associated with this, at least in a September timeframe. And if we have any listeners that are interested in trying this thing out, the formality is I think that you send me an email, I have your email address, and then I can add you to Apple's program, which they call test flight, which enables me to send you the app and actually have the play experience yourself. So I'm getting to that level currently, um, but I wanted to put it out for listeners that are interested in 
in playing with this thing. Because I think the the main narrative engine was written not by me, but by a gentleman in the UK called Bob Mottram. And he came to it thinking that the nature of episodic events was so central in Noble 8, but were lost instantly, almost like an episodic event logger. Mm-hmm. And then when we actually constructed this thing and were working on it, it was probably me that, I don't know, I mean, Bob obviously liked it. But for me, it was just fascinating because it showed all the micro interactions with Noble 8 that were never really that important. I mean, if you're looking for, you know, large scale social mm. evolution, you know, whether people are picking up twigs or hitting each other or it's separate. But then I realized that this thing is actually like a soap opera. So it's a very yeah. curious dimension, but I wanted to put it that. That sounds fun. I mean, it also sounds like you've got a bit of a curse of seeing the professional side of things. Like, I'm sure it would be fine if you just put it out without any kind of deep server support. Like, but I think having worked for, you know, a serious infrastructure, you're, you're sort of bracing yourself for, I'll believe you, you know how to do things right, you know? Well, I think that's the, I mean, the, the nature of my professional career is very different, really, than anything that I've put out in these podcasts. In fact, a majority of these podcasts were put out prior to me working for my current employer. So a lot of the whimsy and a lot of the creative, you know, anarchy has in some part been embodied through the, what I do in the day to day, particularly associated with large scale simulations. I mean, mm. you know, just amazing, amazing and fascinating and complex simulation problems that I encounter on a weekly basis. But what fascinates me through this is that the learnings that I've had translating it to the Biota podcast as a thing. Particularly working and dealing with academics is is a different thing. It's very curious that I feel I've learned so much in the past eight years, but none of this actually exists in the form that you know potentially others could access until I do something like release an app, mm-hmm. and then it becomes accessible in some level. Yeah, so I think that'd be quite good. I'll definitely pick it up. I'd like to try it out. So, do you have anything else you'd like to discuss? Is there anything that's caught you recently? I have an interview with Bruce Damer. Unfortunately, this week has been remarkably hectic professionally. I talked with Bruce on Monday, and I haven't had a chance to get it out yet. Uh, but a lot of the conversation with Bruce was about him talking about his you know, current work and projected work. One of the things I did want to put out is that Bruce has started up a Patreon page, and most of the Patreon interactions relate to access. And this mm. I find very interesting because I've seen access-related Patreons go up previously. And truth be told... So your friend, I can't think of his name. Is your friend's name Mark, who you yeah. work with at Sony? I saw well, him. Uh, which, which, which one? Uh, I watched a documentary uh, which featured him, and he worked with regards to the, um, the haptic device that you also worked on. Oh, yeah, so that's Rick, Rick Marks, yeah. Is it Rick Marks? I thought it was Mark. Well, I'm pretty sure the gentleman's name was Mark. And it, anyway, anyway, oh, well, maybe you didn't work. Yeah, there. at Sony, yeah. Well, there's, yeah. Maybe there's another Mark. Yeah. But what yeah. was fascinating through that, so this is a documentary about how the UK games industry evolved, video games primarily, starting from the late 70s through to today, really. And mm. this came about because I am meeting two gentlemen in the UK, a gentleman called Ian Livingston and a gentleman called Steve Jackson who have created maybe seven different like seminal turning point intellectual properties in the UK. And they create, as you know, because you dropped me at a game store, they created Games Workshop. So they're the founders of Games Workshop. Oh, yeah. They created the Fighting Fantasy books. They created EDOS, 
which was a games company. It might still be a games company. I'm not sure. Yeah. I haven't really followed them in the UK. Um, they now do like a lot of different things like that. The uh, Close Combat series of Microsoft games. I mean, they've done a lot of stuff. They've moved through kind of paper-based nerd hobbies into electronic nerd hobbies. But the reason I'm having lunch with them is that they were writing a book about, or they're writing a book about creating Games Workshop. And mm. I'm fascinated with the how they actually created this thing. It's very similar to the origins of, you know, Dungeons & Dragons, Gary Gygax et al., except these guys have a serial history of creating nerd-obsessive enterprises mm-hmm. and gathering together really crazy people. I mean, it's very applicable to the artificial life community as well. So, mm. But it's a pay-for-play. I paid 500 US dollars to have lunch with them. Okay. And what I find interesting is that increasingly, um, as Bruce is doing with his Patreon page, people are offering themselves, you know, in Bruce's case, I think it's about $125 to have lunch with him. And, hmm. you know, and then I think for $400, you get like a tour of the farm. There are all these different Patreon things, which I've done <laughs> through creating this Biota podcast and actually working with Bruce for, you know, how many years, 20 plus years now. So um, it is interesting, the notion that he's putting dollar amounts in a Patreon to get people to do this stuff. But he is actually getting people to, you know, give him money through the Patreon. And it's funding some of his collective projects. What what are your feelings with regards to Patreon? Do you think this is something that the artificial life community could use? Are you familiar with these people that, you know, I'll take money to have lunches and these kind of things? I mean, what's your general thought? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it. I don't think I've ever really engaged in it. Um properly i think it's hard to say for me because i've kind of had a steady held a steady day job so i I haven't had to sort of do stuff through patreon to to support stuff i mean just judging by the kind of the financial intake of artificial life projects i would say any income you can take is good (laughs) so i certainly wouldn't knock it till i tried it is i guess the (laughs) easiest move putting it, if you can have a couple of hundred bucks and have a nice conversation with someone at lunch and, you know, not get stalked afterwards or something weird like that, <laughs> then, you know, I'll take it. Uh, I think it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of what museums do, right? You know, to a certain extent, yeah. Yeah, or tours of factories and things. And so I think it's, it's good. It's, I think it might be a really good way to engage with people that are very serious about something. And, Certainly. you know, I think there's good will to be said for people just, you know, chatting on podcasts, like kind of we are now, but mm-hmm. I think at a certain point, just spoken to you know people that do a lot of public speaking and stuff like that, you just get to a point where you're getting asked to speak so often that you have to start charging for right. it simply as a, as a means of triaging, you know, it is unless it's a very good cause or something, but you just have to, because otherwise you know, you get burnt by getting invited to some event and then you show up and then there's like three people there and <laughs> the host is kind of weird or whatever, right? Like, yes. so a couple of those happen and you say, okay, well, you know, money turns out to be a pretty decent way of separating just, you know, totally crazy people from, from non-crazy people. Well, at least, I don't yeah. find that to be the case, but I mean, I, <laughs> to be perfectly clear, this, the way that I'm having lunch with these gentlemen is a book project. And part of the donations for the book project was to have lunch with them. So it wasn't through Patreon. I've had mixed feelings about Patreon for many years. A number of people have said to me, you need to get Patreons for your podcast and you'll be able to buy equipment and you won't be this kind of gnarled creature at the end of the day and all this kind of stuff. I, up until probably about, I don't know, maybe a year ago, 
I was really, really jaded and just generally disgusted by Patreon. And then I met through work someone who worked for Patreon previously, and I've never met more of a kind of visionary, just generally, and she has her own YouTube channel. She makes good money through YouTube, but she also works with me professionally. Mm -hmm. And I found her insights into the Patreon culture because the whole thing is a little bit strange for me personally. I, I find that like there's a lot of strange YouTubers that are on Patreon and, you know, there's a kind of darker side to Patreon and, you know, there are all these things that I just find a bit weird about the company. But having realized that actually this is just my own personal cognitive proclivities mapped onto something and that there is, you know, legitimate money to be made there and it is perfectly fair to, if you need financial support, to offer you, you know, I mean, there seem to be a series of different kinds of Patreon usage cases. And I think the Patreon that says right on, I like what you're doing, you have, you know, three bucks a month or whatever, has certainly been used by a lot of podcasts. The way Bruce is using it, I find genuinely interesting. And I do wonder about the stalker thing. And it, actually, that's one of the sad things associated with my, you know, the co-worker who used to work for Patreon, is that she doesn't actually do public events or anything. Mm. So um, the for, you know, probably that very reason. Um so it is a very strange thing, the whole notion of putting things out. I mean, from my perspective, putting these podcasts out for no money, just putting them out, seeing what happens is in part a way of finding other people. I mean, it's partially selfish in that regard, but it is also a way to inspire. I mean, the experience I went going to the Artificial Life Convention in 2012, Artificial Life Conference, the number of people that came up to me, folks from Poland, for example, there's a Polish biota listening community through a few of the universities there. But, you know, I mean, you <laughs> like the yeah. podcast, you know? So, I mean, my perspective is that it's an interesting time. And certainly I'm going to be watching how Bruce does through this thing because it's a, it's an interesting transition in terms of, well, you know, what would the world bring out? I'm interested in seeing what Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston's, <laughs> reaction is to me and some fundamentals right. i'm going to turn up with the last book that i edited which was about a, a phone hacker called john draper crunch and give them i i'm coming bearing gifts as well <laughs> as this thing so it could work out very interestingly but i will be taking one fighting fantasy book uh for them to sign and you know this is a nerd out element to this as well but they are oh. both amazing you know people in their own right who have had very storied careers in you know a variety of different directions and i'm also kind of supporting them putting a book out which i want to see anyway so i don't know It'd well yeah i think to see how it goes. yeah i think for, for cases like that where people are feeling like they want to contribute and donate i think that's kind of the brightest side of it and you know i think uh, whether you want to like schedule play, you know pay for lunch kind of situations i think that is up to everybody's different comfort zone i mean and it depends on your community or the kind of people you attract or whatever. I don't know if that's like, that's probably more of a gray version. You know, you probably have to do some people management. And yes. And I think also the kind of the Kickstarter version where you sort of oh, yes. raise a bunch of money and then you're on the hook to deliver something. I think that's, uh, you know, having talked to a lot of people that have done that, I don't think, I don't actually remember anyone saying that was a positive experience in the end. Mm. Though I think that's, 
hard to know whether it was a necessary one, you know, because I had some friends that would have released games on Kickstarter and they sort of said that if they could do it over, they wouldn't just because <laughs> like in, in not a mean way, but the public is just like blissfully unaware of what it takes and to oh, ship a game me. and how it's actually done and oh, et cetera. Yeah. And so engaging, like they say they, they would rather take like, you know, suit publishing money any day. <laughs> um, you so don't want to see how the sausage yeah. is made, right? You just don't right. want to see how the sausage is made. Right. Unfortunately, the Kickstarters that I do put money into that are incredibly successful and work out well are all with regards to physical games. Mm. I mean, my understanding is that the turnaround on these things is very high and that they, you know, pump out millions of dollars quite comfortably. I think it's the most lucrative part of Kickstarter mm. based on delivery and, you know, year-over-year delivery. So I think for certain things, for tangible objects, Kickstarter certainly has a place for software. I don't know whether it has a place. It certainly, I've put money into speaking things. I put money into a fellow who I appeared on multiple podcasts with, and he never delivered on that, and that was basically the end of the friendship. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, because it showed, I mean, Steve Grant is a different case. We've talked about Steve Grant. He's been very honest associated with the process. And really you've, you get a greater degree of intimacy, I think with Steve Grant through Kickstarter than probably any other form. I think the future will write itself in terms of what works itself out from this. But I, I found out about Bruce's Patreon the day after he appeared on the Biota podcast. And I would have really liked to have had the chance to have a chat with him. I think in future conversations, it will certainly come up and hopefully he won't get stalked or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I personally think of Kickstarter as a donation thing. Like I, I, I remember I funded some early Kickstarter stuff when, when it first started and it very quickly became apparent that the idea that you're engaged in the development or that you can or should have a say is like kind of a flawed idea. Mm. Um, like, because you know, the developers kind of unknowingly invite this mob to help critique their game and say, you know, we want you to help shape it and we want it to be what you want it and blah, blah, blah. And like, that sounds great on paper, but then you just get the worst design by committee thing. Yeah, I've, I've never seen, I mean, I've never backed those kind of things. I've always backed things where they've basically had a creative vision. I mean, one project, yeah. in fact, a couple of projects that I've backed through Kickstarter, mainly actually documentary films go both ways, but I've funded documentary films that have taken three years to come out and they've just come out horribly. And then, you know, I mean, so I guess I continue to roll the dice with regards to Kickstarter, but in the field of artificial life, I think Steve Grant and um, Jeffrey Ventrella, actually, uh, Jeffrey Ventrella actually funded it and got through it successfully and created an AR environment from it. I mean, he talked about it when I spoke to him earlier this year. So, you know, there are some successful things through Kickstarter, but yeah, I, I'm with you, irrespective of meeting corporate lawyers and having to sign away parts of your, you know, kidneys and what have you. <laughs> my view is that if you if you're a wage slave and you do artificial life on the side, there's no shame in that. So. Yeah, and I mean, when when I fund artificial life stuff, I just do it because yeah. I want to see it even tried. You know, like when I I backed um, Steve's uh, project and I had you know. With all respect to Steve, I have no real hopes of it necessarily coming out. Like, I think if anyone can do it, it's him. But I'm not, like, holding him to it and saying, look, I made this donation. I, you know, I hope you honor it or whatever. Like, I'm doing it because I think 
the thing is awesome and I want someone to take a stab and I would love for him to take a stab because he's the best person to do it. So that's kind of how I feel it. But I've, I've parted ways with my money. <laughs> you know, when it, when it goes into Kickstarter, I expect kind of nothing back. Because then if you go in with low expectations, you're very pleasantly surprised <laughs> at, at the end of it all. I think that's the only... As otherwise, you get angry, and then the anger just makes yeah. the developer sad, and then well, I have an experience with a with a game called Tunnels and Trolls, which is a historical classic. I put money in, nothing happened for three and a half years, and then I started recording YouTube videos with spreadsheets. Because they, sorry, to say nothing happened is in fact not the case. What happened was the people who got the Kickstarter money went on tour. <laughs> they started traveling internationally. They flew all over the place. And then one of them had appendicitis and all these other kinds of things. So it wasn't that they were doing nothing. It's just they were doing nothing associated with the original Kickstarter. So I started putting together YouTube videos associated with, like, let's chart how many days has actually gone on this thing, whether it hasn't come out. And I didn't realize that it was actually a very active Tunnels and Trolls community. And I got trolled by the tunnels and trolls community <laughs> and that was fascinating to me because i didn't stop like i kind of counter trolled them and they started sending me things like they found out i mean I, I guess my accent my words were enough to define who i was or maybe they just stalked me sufficiently and i started getting parcels at work from the tunnels wow. and trolls community which was really very surreal but yeah no there are many different permutations of this thing and uh yeah, look, the Kickstarter, the Steve Grant Kickstarter, I've, I've known this gentleman for many years. I want to back a reality TV show about his life. I can't understand. I mean, I can't understand how he survives. When I knew him on a day-to-day -day basis, when we were in constant communication, I felt really strange about this because I didn't have a sense of how this man was surviving. And now I have go through periods where I don't have contact. When I have contact with him again, it's still exactly the same, but I just, I can't understand maybe, you know, through the OBE or whatever, the queen slipped him some stipend or something. But yeah, I, I would back a reality TV show associated with the life of Steve Grant any day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kickstart that. I think that's yeah. a plan. <laughs> <laughs> Anton, it has been a real pleasure as always. Let us do this thing again sometime in a similar distance. I don't, to be frank, the reason that I refloated the Biota podcast was get back, to be back in contact with old friends. I've gotten back in contact with a number of the old friends I wanted to get back in contact with. And mysteriously, actually, it has charted a trajectory of artificial life developers as model rail enthusiasts. Just people that are happy building their simulations and the world could go on and do its thing and, and <laughs> communicating with the, them again and realizing that they're basically doing the same stuff. I mean, you know, some of them are in different places, but fundamentally it's about just maintaining these projects that obviously they love, as I do. And um, I don't actually have any planned recordings after this one. So in full disclosure to the audience, Anton and I may be talking on an every couple of months basis. And if if you, and I'm speaking to the audience here, want to participate in the Bioda podcast, I know we're, we're huge in Portugal currently, if any of our Portuguese listeners want to get in, involved with this thing and participate, please do get in contact with me. And I'm more than happy to have a chat with you as I have with Anton, as I've had with a number of other folk. But the original purpose of this podcast in terms of refloating it was just to get back in contact with a variety of folk. And I've gone back in contact with the majority of them, including Steve Grant. 
And maybe, hopefully, I can maybe even tease Steve into these recordings. But the frequency of the Biota podcast may not be as frequent as they have been in recent months, just because I, my guest list has, has basically dropped up. Uh, so why don't we plan on talking in a, a couple of months' time, Anton? I, I will have been to the UK and back. I will no doubt have some stories associated with that. Hopefully, I'll have an app at least in test flight. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you as movable feast machine moves to, you know, different dimensions and, uh, you know, new updates flow accordingly. It's been a pleasure as always, Anton. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.